0: Aren't you just a sight for sore eyes? Of all the movie and TV joints and all the towns and all the world, you walked into mine. How lovely. Come, sit. Let me pour you a drink before we begin the showing. You know, I think that this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Cheers. Here's looking at you, Phil. Well, hello there. How are we? Welcome back to Here's Looking at You Film, a podcast for the vintage cinephile with modern sensibilities. I'm your host, Nikki. Uh, Happy New Year. Um, So, you know, when I, I thought about this Starting this podcast a long time ago, but when I started this in October, it was really something that I wanted to do strictly for me. Um, just I didn't really care about the outcome. I just wanted to have like a secondary activity to do um, to keep me busy. So every kind tweet, uh, DM email or general well wish that I've gotten has been so welcome. And I am so, so grateful for every person who takes the time to hear me out and listen in, whether it's just for your old personal faves or for movies you haven't seen. Um, It's been a joy to walk you through them. I cannot wait to show you what I have in store for the upcoming year. I'm so excited. Um, I am here recording today with COVID. That's how excited I am about doing this podcast. I will record through the Omarion. I do not care. Um, I'm here for y'all. Love y'all. Um, I also, before I start, wanna send my deepest condolences to the families and close ones of Max Julian, who was best known for starring as Goldie in the 1973 classic, The Mac. Um, He was also uh, a brilliant artist um, and a brilliant actor. Um, And I also wanna send a special thank you for being a friend to our last golden girl, Betty White. Um, Both of them were pioneers in many facets and corners of the arts. And as Julian passed away at 88 and Betty at 99, both angel numbers, I am sure that they're living their best afterlives now. Now, moving into our film this week, I took a little time off for the holiday, but even though we missed the new year countdown, doesn't mean I wasn't watching the clock. More specifically, Stanley Kubrick's 1971 dystopian classic, A Clockwork Orange. Now, the term A Clockwork Orange refers to something that looks natural on the outside but operates mechanically inside. Um, The term was actually featured in the 1962 book by Anthony Burgess, but as there is no reference to the phrase in the film, it would appear to kind of just be a nonsensical name if you're not familiar with the book. And we'll talk a bit about this later, of course. You know, we always talk after the film. Now, our cast isn't really a well-known cast of players, but Malcolm McDowell's iconic disturbed grin shaded by that black bowler hat, one eye curtained in false lashes, became a cult flag of sorts for the degenerate generation, even leading to a temporary ban of the movie for a while in Britain because people were adopting some of the same ultra-violent methods. Um, However, we're gonna run through the cast for the sake of the name, so that you have a, an idea of some of the names in the movie. Um, Malcolm McDowell is Alex DeLarge. Uh, Patrick McGee plays Frank Alexander. Adrian Corey is Mary Alexander, his wife. Um, Michael Bates as Chief Guard Barnes. Warren Clark as Dim. um, Clive Francis plays Joe the Lodger. Miriam Carlin plays the Cat Lady, Mrs. Weathers. Um, James Marcus plays Georgie. And we've got a field of other actors and actresses in the film as well. Now, this film is by Stanley Kubrick, who is sort of a cult filmmaker. A lot of people like to say that his films don't really have a genre. Um, They do have a general theme, of course. Every film has to have some kind of theme. But um, they kind of... uh, weave in and out between science fiction, uh, dystopian, uh, comedy, drama, horror. Um, It weaves in and out between everything. So, um, Stanley Kubrick is sort of like a a director that stands on his own. And this was, I believe, one of his second famous film. Uh, The first one would have been 2001 A Space Odyssey. Um, So, uh, this was, uh, this was meant to mix reviews, but we'll talk a little bit more about that as well later. Okay, well, now that we have our players, we can press play. Our film begins on a deep red screen with electronic Baroque music playing. Uh, The screen quickly jumps to blue to tell us that this is a Stanley Kubrick production and switches back to red to display the name of the film, A Clockwork Orange. We jump to a close-up of our main boy and narrator, Alex DeLarge. Now, quick note, in the book, he doesn't really have a last name, but he refers to himself one time as Alex DeLarge, and so Kubrick simply made it into his name, stylized. Now, back to the film. Pulling out from this close-up, we get a full view of the uniform that he and his droogs don. Black bowler cap, white suspenders, white cricket uniform with the jock cup on the outside and black boots. Here at the Corova Milk Bar, the tables and milk dispensers are all white porcelain sculptures of naked women wearing colorfully, uh, strangely done up wigs. And as we continue to pull back, we get a welcoming opening monologue from Alex. There was me, that is Alex, and my three droogs, that is Pete, Georgie, and Dim. And we sat in the Corova Milk Bar trying to make up our Razzadukes, what to do with the evening. The Corova Milk Bar sold Milk Plus. Milk Plus Velocet, or Synthamesc, or drinkrum, which is what we were drinking. This would sharpen you up and make you ready for a bit of the old ultraviolence. So some of the funky sounding slang in the book and the film were written specifically by Anthony Burgess and is referred to as Nadsat, which is like a mix of Russian homophones and some English slang. Burgess was a polyglot and he realized that if he used the slang from the time, which was the late 60s, the book would sort of be stuck in the 60s and would be dated eventually. So creating a language based on foreign words that don't ever change, but still sound stylized, make the text a little bit more timeless, but still give it that young feel. So for instance, the word drug derives from the Russian word murug, which means friend. Or the Russian word for good, korosho, sounds very close to the word Horror show. So something real horror show is really good, contrary to how it sounds. And there's also plays on regular words, like apology being apipalilogies, or mom and dad being PNM. I personally think it only really sounds good in a British accent, but I think maybe I'm just not cool enough to give a good show of it and make it sound cool. Maybe if I had a cooler voice, it would sound better coming out of my mouth. Getting back to Alex and his droogs, we find ourselves under a bridge with an old drunk loudly singing a tune, hoping someone will come help him to drown his sorrows even more. And in the darkness of the bridge, we can see the shadow of our boys approaching, walking canes in hand. Alex narrates over his singing about how he hates a messy drunk, especially an old one. The old man asks if they can spare him some cutter, which is a 10 piece. Now, it's, I looked this up and it's called cutter because it was also, if they were in prison, they commonly sharpened it and used it as a weapon to cut people because it was one of the thinner coins. So when Alex ends up jabbing him in the stomach with his cane, the old man becomes indignant and tells him to go ahead and kill him because he's tired of the stinking world. Oh and what's so stinking about it? Because there's no law and order anymore, and because they let the young get on with the old, just like this. And just as our old man starts to sing another old sailor's tune, the boys merrily beat the shit out of him, laughing and cheering the whole time. And we jump to an empty theater, greeted by the sounds of orchestral music, and terrified screams. Another band of brothers, Billy Boy and his four drooks, are viciously claw- clawing at a woman on this stage, tearing her clothes off and forcing her onto a mattress as she frantically tries to get away. Now, I mentioned earlier that uh, this movie was mit- met to mixed reviews, and one of the reasons is this scene. It is very long. The screams go on for so long they tear away at her clothes and try to pick her up and claw at her for so long. And there is always something really disturbing about watching men delight in the terror of women. and it goes on for so, I can't, it goes on for so long. Anyway, well, as they're preparing for the old in out, in out with a weepy young Devochka, Alex and his droogs emerge from the shadows Looking for a fight. Our girl is lucky enough to get out with no clothes on, running for her life while the boys are distracted because apparently Billy Boy and his boys are down to clown. Even though it's five to four, Alex and his droog somehow come out victorious and leave the other gang wrecked as the police sirens approach. And they head out in their Durango and they play chicken with unsuspecting drivers, running cars, vans, motorcycles off the road left and right just a mess and they don't care but where are they going home not their home though there's a house a bit of the ways off with a brightly lit home light right by the gate inside we find a writer enjoying an evening at home frank alexander now in the book mr alexander was working on a book called a clockwork orange But we don't get reference to that in the film. I mentioned that earlier. So the doorbell rings. His beautiful wife, Mary, emerges in a very 70s one-piece jumpsuit to check the door. This frantic voice from behind the door tells him that there's been an accident and they need help. While the wife is wary about opening the door and tells him that they don't have a phone, once she tells her husband what's going on, her husband says they should open the door up if someone's in trouble. Well, that was a big mistake. As soon as she unlocks the door, Alex and his drugs come barging in wearing these terrifying clown masks. They pick the woman up, throw her over, Dim throws her over his shoulder, and they come storming into the living room area, knocking the man over, kicking and beating him before stuffing a ball gag into both of their mouths and taping them shut. Then, Mr. Alexander is forced to lay and watch as they cut his wife's jumpsuit off. And while it's not on camera, they all presumably assault her. While all of this is disturbing enough, while they're committing this ultra violence, Alex is happily singing, Singing in the Rain, as a sort of a horror soundtrack to this assault that Frank is experiencing and watching his wife go through. The camera angles are wide and bent on the sides, and it feels like a strange, funhouse horror show or horror movie, you know? But not horror show in the good way, in the bad way. And right before the scene cuts, he gets close up to the husband and tells him to viddy well. And viddy means watch, so he's telling him to watch everything that's about to happen. <sighs> Afterwards, they head back to the Corova for a night nightcap, more milk plus. So up until now, it's been pretty clear that Alex and his droogs don't care for much except degenerate activity. Except one thing. Across the way, as the music pauses in the bar, a woman begins to sing Beethoven's Ninth, Ode to Joy, one of Alex's favorite songs. You see, Alex loves music, but he has a particular love for Ludwig van. This isn't a shared love among his droogs, though, and as Dim starts to make some immature noises at her singing, Alex whacks him across the lap with his cane. This startles the woman, but Alex simply raises his milk plus to her in a toasting gesture of respect. Dim, however, is not happy. Alex is supposed to be the homie, so he's like, I don't like what you did, and I'm not your brother no more. Alex is like, chill, chill, if you want to stay alive. Dim is like, bruh, that's yarbles. I'll meet you with chain or notch or Britva anytime. I'm not finna let you just hit me. And Alex is like, anytime you say, bruh, space and opportunity. So, Dim don't want that smoke. So he's like, my B, Alex, doobie doo, I'm tired. We should just go get some sleep. Right? Everybody's like, right because they know they don't want to smoke so alex is like 16 still in school and living with his parents so when he heads home we get to see his apartment building has a really rundown lobby but their apartment is actually pretty nice and alex has some interesting choices of art like he has four statues of jesus um like mid crucifixion posed up standing shoulder to shoulder like a group of droogs, like a group of, a band of brothers, I guess. And there's also this painting of a woman with her legs spread and she's holding her legs open. And he has his snake perch situated right in front of it. So his snake appears to creep in between the woman's legs. He puts away his spoils for the night, the jewelry and money that he stole from the house that they had terrorized and decides to settle in for a little Beethoven before bed. And he almost seems to have this orgasmic look on his face as he listens. Very strange. In the morning, when his mom tries to wake him up uh, for school, he very respectfully tells her that he's sick, he needs to recover, even though he hasn't been to school all week. But he is insistent that if he doesn't get better, he's gonna be back out of school anyway, so he might as well just stay home and get better. So after he finally gets up and thinks he has the house to himself, walking around scratching his ass, he notices a man sitting on his parents' bed, namely Mr. Deltoid, who's basically like Alex's parole officer. He'd gotten into some corrective trouble before, and he's his corrective officer who basically checks in on him to make sure he doesn't get in trouble again. Um, Alex's mom gave Mr. Deltoid the key to check in on Alex since he was quote-unquote sick, and... If you guys have ever seen that episode of Family Guy, where Brian um, goes to work, I think at the New York Times, or when Chris Griffin goes to that, um, his grandfather's school, and there's th- those people in are like, how do you do, son? Mr. Deltoid sounds just like that. Oh, mm, yes, yes. Uh. He says, yes, yes. <laughs> so he beckons Alex to sit next to him on the bed and it's kind of weird because Alex is in his tidy whities and he's naked other than his underwear and Mr. Deltoid has this very sort of aggressive smile on his face but he's roughly grabbing Alex's hair and Pulls him back onto the bed, sort of, while insinuating that Alex is still n- up to no good. Some extreme nastiness, yes. <laughs> All while Alex is, like, protesting, saying, like, I'm I'm on the up and up. I'm not doing none of that. Like, the police haven't caught me doing anything. And He's like, just because the police haven't caught you doesn't mean you're not doing anything, bruh. And then he weirdly pops Alex, like, on the crotch and is telling him he better not sully up his um his good record for like saving boys you know and he says he's the only one that wants to help save Alex from himself then he ends up taking two sips out of a glass that have dentures in it because he didn't realize it and it's really gross um anyway later that evening Alex goes to this market of sorts and he meets two girls so fun fact he's going to pick up a record and right where he stands to ask if the record has come in yet there's a copy of the there's a record copy of the soundtrack to 2001 a space odyssey on display by alex's lex and that's stanley kubrick's 1968 film so there's a, like a fun little crossover there so anyway he ends up running into these girls and both of them are sucking on these like phallic shaped lollipops. One of them is bent and one of them is very straight. Um, There's some weird flirting going on, but then he takes them back to his house and there's a very sped up threesome sequence. Um, There's a lot of the, they all end up taking their clothes off. They're rolling around in the bed. Then one of the girls will get up and take her, put her clothes back on. But then he gets up and takes her clothes back off, puts her back in the bed, has sex with her. The other girl is putting her clothes on. Then he gets her back naked, gets her back in the bed, has sex with her. Then he gets them both back. And it's a sped up. It's probably about a minute and a half, but probably about a 20, 30 minute sequence. If you put it into regular speed. Um, And it's all accompanied by a classical score, and it's very comically fast. Presumably the next day, Alex emerges to find his droogs waiting for him in the lobby. Now, even though they're all around the same age, Alex appears to be the leader, of course, and also seems to be a bit more intelligent than them. So at first, they blather on and giggle about how they came looking because he wasn't at the bar and... Then eventually, Georgie reveals that they've been talking, and they're tired of the little petty money that they've been collecting from these little um, intrusions that they've been doing, and they want to do something big, you know. Alex realizes that they're all kind of banding together to dethrone him as leader, and he's taken aback. But, of course, he's outnumbered three to one, so he can't do much. So he agrees to hear them out once they get out to wherever they're going. But as they're heading out to start their evening, Alex realizes that he has to be their leader. He can't let this happen. So he hits Georgie in the legs with the cane and knocks him into um, the river that they're walking by, followed by Dim trying to attack Alex and falling into the river as well. And then when Dim tries to get out, Alex extends his hand to grab and pull him out, but quickly pulls out a knife and cuts Dim right across the back of his hand. So now the boys are are docile the other guy Peter he hasn't really done anything he's just kind of stayed back he does not want to get in his mess he is not gonna get in trouble and Alex gives them all a little guff to see if they're still riled up but they are definitely like no we don't we we don't want to talk about it anymore but Alex still wants to hear the plan because he's sure if they've gone through all this it must be a good plan right so there's this like retreat out in the middle of nowhere a little ways off and it's closed for the week and it's run by this um older lady but there's probably a ton of money and stuff in there so they figure off they're gonna go the woman inside mrs weathers is practicing her very flexible yoga positions while her many 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 cats run around so many cats so She hears the doorbell. She hits the buzzer, asks what's going on. She hears the same sob story about there being an accident. Somebody needs help. Friend is badly hurt. So she decides not to let them in. And uh, Alex says, oh, I totally understand, you know, with all the people and all these crazy youth running around. Totally understand why you wouldn't want to let us in. Well, you know, have a good night. Well, she hasn't let them in, but she does decide to call the police because the language that they used outside the door is literally the exact same script that she had read in the papers from Frank Alexander and his wife's attack. And she just wants to be careful. So she's called the police just to tell them what's going on. They've said they'll send a SWAT car around. Well, the drugs decide to climb in the back way. Alex is going to hop in the window. And then once he's got, Mrs. Weathers subdued, he'll let the rest of the Drugs in the front door. Um, once uh, Alex gets in, Mrs. Weathers is feisty and ready to fight. She does not play. And she gives him a run for the money. But so there was this like big penis sculpture on her desk, like a very big penis sculpture. And Alex decided he was messing around with it. She told him don't mess around with it. So he decides to pick her up and he's messing around and pretending he's going to attack her with it. He's chasing her around. And when she falls, he eventually beats her unconscious with it. So Alex hears the police coming and heads outside to get out of Dodge, tells the drugs they've got to leave. But Dim is waiting with a bottle and smashes Alex in the face with it. So he can't see. And he's left alone to be arrested when the police arrived by himself at the station Alex is trying to be chill but they beat him up because who cares if you're cool we're still gonna beat you up you're a gross belligerent youth and we can beat you up we are the police then Mr. Deltoid shows up so Alex is like tell them I'm a good kid I'm a good lad but no um Mrs. Weathers died from her injuries so Alex is a murderer now and has messed up Deltoid's record officially, just like he told him not to do. And the police tell this Deltoid, you can hit him if you want to. But he does even worse. He spits right in his face, like gathers as much spit as he can. And ugh. so our boy gets sentenced to 14 years. And upon entry, you can tell that he knows how to put on for authority to seem like a good guy. He follows instructions to the T, no backtalk, and tries to emulate the model prisoner. He's especially astute in their religious practices, even taking position as the altar assistant. There's a guy that keeps flirting with him and making kissy faces at him while he's up there and he's trying to ignore it. And while the rest of the prisoners are goofing off, he takes to reading the Bible because he pictures himself as one of the Romans beating and killing Jesus or having tons of concubines as a, a master of war. Not so much the like nice New Testament stuff, the angry Old Testament stuff. Anyway, soon we find out why he's been trying so hard. There's a new method, the Ludovico technique that is supposed to make a man completely good 100% No questions asked. They don't really know how it works. And he tells the priest that he wants to try to get in on this method because he's been so good in prison. He believes he should be able to get out early. And this method would allow him to be able to do that. The priest tries to explain to him that true goodness is a choice. And a man is not a man if he can't make his own decision to be good. Alex does not care. He does not want to sit in prison for 14 years, and this can get him out way faster, so he's trying to do it. One day, in a lucky break, the Prime Minister comes to visit, and he's looking for an inmate to try this procedure on. And Alex decides to speak up, just randomly, to agree with something that the um, Prime Minister has said. He almost gets in trouble by the guards, but the PM likes his vigor, and decide, yep, that's the one, we gonna take them. Now, the governor doesn't like this at all. Of course, the priest doesn't like this at all. He thinks people need to serve their time for the crimes that they commit, right? But Alex gets handed over to this medical facility and is officially a part of this trial treatment. He's given a comfy bed, good food, nice nurses, but no real information about the technique, only that he'll be watching some films And this will definitely make him better. Much faster. Now, for the technique. Alex is strapped to a chair in a straitjacket. His head is strapped so he can't turn it. His eyes are pinned open with metal clamps. A doctor, who was an actual doctor, by the way, is placed next to him to continuously place eye drops in his eyes to keep his eyes moistened, since he can't blink. So... First day, just like they said, he watches some films, violent films, with bloodshed, ultra violence, assault, sexual assault. Normally, for Alex, this would be awesome sauce, cool beans, right? But part of the treatment involves drugs, which make him feel extremely nauseous, uncomfortable. And some people describe it as wanting to literally die during these violent bits. Overall, not a pleasant experience, but he gets through it because he knows this is how he can get out, right? So his next session, bit different. Instead of the actual audio of the violence playing along with the film, it's been replaced by a soundtrack, a very familiar tune for Alex. Our old boy, Ludwig van, the ninth. Alex quickly realizes that this procedure is going to destroy his love for this song. And he starts to beg them to stop in the most pained and passionate display that we've seen from Alex this whole film. He is reeling in distress, but it can't be helped. It's an unfortunate side effect of the treatment, and he'll have to sit through it. Hurt. Imagine your favorite song. Imagine like my favorite song. What is one of my favorite songs? Um, What's the song I really like? Bohemian Rhapsody, right? Imagine if every time I heard Bohemian Rhapsody, I wanted to barf. That would hurt my feelings. Never karaoke ever again. Like, what are we doing? Like. That, that is hurt, hurtful. And Beethoven's Ninth plays in a lot of places. Ode to Joy is a very common song. You telling me every time he hears Ode to Joy, he's gonna get sick? Oh my gosh. Anyway, after a mere two weeks of this procedure, he's placed on a stage to demonstrate the effectiveness of the treatment. First, a man comes out and begins to insult Alex Um, Which he at first takes very lightly and very well, knowing that he's not allowed to display any kinds of um, violence towards the man. But the man begins to beat Alex and kicks him. And actually, um, during the filming of this, Alex's cornea, I mean, Michael McDowell's cornea was scratched by the apparatus that held his eyes open and he went temporarily blind. And during this scene, his ribs were broken because this guy was kicking him in the stomach. Um, And eventually um, the man orders Alex to lick the bottom of his shoe and he complies um, because he has no choice. Next, a naked woman presents on the other side of the stage and Alex is on his knees. She approaches Alex as he looks up at her and he reaches up to touch her breasts and begins to retch as if he's going to throw up. The audience is pleased. The priest is there. He is not pleased. And he says this is an abomination. But Alex is just happy that he's done good and happy that he's able to get out. He's free to go. So now just a short two years and some change later, Alex is back on the streets with a manila envelope holding all of the belongings he went to prison with, minus his cigarettes and the chocolate. He heads home, excited to see his parents and sleep in his bed. However, his parents seem to be a bit put off by his arrival. And there is a man in his room. His parents have rented out the room to a nice young gentleman named Joe. um, that's actually become like a son to them. And he tosses some pretty harsh insults at Alex based on what he's heard between the papers and Alex's parents. And Alex gets a little bit riled up, but as soon as he goes to punch Joe, immediately starts to retch and heave and barf or burp. And it is really a disgusting thing to watch. He finds out that uh, his parents had to give away all of his money and belongings in order to pay the victims of his previous crimes. And his snake died. And they can't just kick Joe out. He's there working on a job. And he's been so nice to them. So Alex's parents send him away by himself. He's walking. He has a moment when he's sitting... Uh, And realizes that his parents are kicking him out. And Joe is insulting him. And his parents aren't stopping them. Aren't stopping Joe. And he's crying. Pitiful. Because there's nothing else he can do at this point. He can't fight. He can't get angry. These are his parents. And even if he wanted to fight. It would just make him sick. So he just sits there and cries. And eventually gets up and says he'll go out and make it on his own. His mother just sits there and weeps. She doesn't do anything, and his father, he doesn't care. So off Alex goes, trying to figure out what to do. He's walking by the river, and he's approached by an old man, asking if he can spare some cutter. Well, Alex gives him a little bit of change that he has in his pocket and begins to walk away, but the old man recognizes him from the beating under the bridge two years prior uh he says he never forgets a face and as Alex is trying to walk away he calls his other tramp friends over and they begin to attack and scold and push Alex they take his envelope from him um and he's forced to curl up into a ball on the ground and just take it he can't do anything he can't fight so eventually he's saved by a couple of officers Let's see the tussle going on under this bridge. And they run the tramps off. And as the cops are helping Alex up, he realizes in horror that these coppers are Dim and Georgie, his old betrayed drugs And they know he can't fight them off. Alex has been in all the papers. Everyone knows about his procedure. So they grab him up, tie him up drive him out to a far location in the middle of the woods. And they beat him while submerging his head into dirty water for a long ass time. Like, I do not know how this man didn't die. His head was under there for like two, three minutes while they beat him. Maybe it wasn't that long. But I was trying to hold my breath to see if I could do it without getting beat, just holding my breath. I would have died, died, I would have died, like full stop, died. But eventually they finally let him up and then they leave him just in the middle of nowhere. Wretching, <clears throat> sick, gross. He's bloody injured. He finally manages to crawl up to a random house that has a home sign lit by the gate. Yes. You know where he is. However, Mr. Frank Alexander is now in a wheelchair and he's living with a young gentleman. And I'm not sure if he's a caretaker or a partner, but Mary is no longer there. And the doorbell rings and the younger gentleman asks who it is to no response. He decides to open the door and Alex falls in a sad, wet, injured mess right onto the ground. And the young gentleman picks him up and carries him. And he's very athletic, this young guy, very muscular, picks him up into his arms, carries him in. And upon seeing the writer in his wheelchair, Alex realizes exactly where he is. However, as you may remember, they had on masks during the attack. So the writer just recognizes Alex as the boy from the papers that they've done this really unfortunate, horrible procedure on taking away his free will. And Alex buys into it. Yes, I'm a victim. They've done this to me. He's also told them the police have attacked him. Frank Alexander is anxious to help. And he orders his young companion to draw Alex a bath, make him comfortable, they're gonna get him food, and they wanna to talk to him about what has happened to him. They wanna know what the government has done to him. So now for a moment, Alex feels safe. He lounges happily in the bath and begins to sing a tune. I'm singing in the rain. Yes, yeah, singing in the rain. The distinct soundtrack and voice to Frank's night of terror is echoing from his bathroom in his tub. He has a swift change of plans. Alice comes downstairs to eat and is presented with spaghetti and wine, neither of which Frank or his companion are eating. They are just staring at Alex while he eats. They also seem to have a slightly different disposition, more stern. But Alex begins to eat and drink with more vigor as it doesn't seem to taste strange and they seem to want him to eat. Frank tells Alex about his former wife. Uh, They say she died of pneumonia some months after the attack. But Frank firmly believes that she died from the stress and heartbreak of what she endured when she was, after she was brutally assaulted. Then Frank tells Alex that he's invited some friends over, friends who know about him and are interested in helping him. When they arrive, they start to question him a bit about the procedure, asking specifically about the effect that music has had on him. He reveals that it's not all music, just Beethoven's Ninth. In the middle of lamenting about his love for music, Alex suddenly passes out. Whatever was in the food or the drink, it worked now. And they can exact their plan. So Alex wakes up, he's in a small attic room. His awakening is very uncomfortable and sickening because Mr. Alexander and his cohorts are blaring Ludwig van through the house and the door is locked. He can't escape. He's banging on the floor. The sick feeling won't stop. He's begging for them to stop the torture, but they are pleased with themselves. Alex, meanwhile, is stuck in this sick state. And you remember earlier I said that the procedure makes people feel like sickening to the point of killing themselves. And he can only see one way out of this. A short bit of pain, followed by peace. There's a small window. He opens the window and flings himself onto the concrete below. Our boy survives though, and he wakes up in the hospital with multiple injuries. And he actually wakes up to the sound of his nurse having sex with his doctor uh, in a nearby bed. However, um, he's alive. His parents try to come and apologize, but he's not really hearing it. He's not really too happy about it after they left him out by himself. And uh, then a doctor comes in to give him a series of psychological tests. And he finds out that he no longer has uh, aversions to violence and sex. He can say whatever he wants. He can think whatever he wants. And it's all good and fun. No sick feelings. He's giggling like a middle schooler saying pervy things. And um, the psychologist is delighted, pleased to see his results. The uh, minister arrives and uh, apologizes to Alex for the procedure and its effects because now people are associating it with Alex's suicide attempt and um, it's a whole thing now. And he offers to take care of Alex, give him a job. Uh, he just wants Alex to cooperate and uh, help him with his reelection campaign and he, because he needs uh, a counteroffensive to this. And he wants Alex to be his poster child. He also tells Alex that Mr. Alexander has had some crazy leftist ideas and has been put away where he can't hurt any more people. And as a sign of goodwill for everything that he's gonna do, the minister brings in a huge stereo system with these big speakers and these huge flowers. Um, and photographers come in to do photo ops for them while Ode to Joy, Beethoven's ninth plays. And Alex delights in not feeling sick hearing, hearing this song. He has a brief uh, thought of having sex with a woman in a pile of snow in front of a bunch of onlookers. And he thinks to himself, yep i was cured all right and that is how our movie ends so the obvious theme here is free will right are you really good if something is forcing you to be that way right but i'd like to pose another question to you about this film specifically and life i guess do shitty people make the world more interesting like If everyone were good, what kind of place would the world be? Watching this film makes me reflect on myself and my nature. Alex is horrible, inherently horrible, right? But still strangely likable. He's smart. He's witty. Has a fun use of language. Quick sense of humor but knows how to put on a good show for the authority figures in his life. He's evil. But somehow, it's way more fun to watch him be a shit human being than watching him burp and almost throw up every time someone is mean to him. The second half of the film is total lemony snicket, just a series of unfortunate meetings and events for this guy. He is... Catching hell for the hell that he caused. But in every case, Alex's previous violence is avenged with more violence. Even in his parents' home, where he really didn't inflict any violence. It was just more mental violence for what his parents didn't know about him. Joe is lashing out at him in the way that his parents probably should have, but didn't know how to. Then he goes out, the old men, the cops, and Mr. Alexander. He becomes a pitiful shell of himself. No quippy comebacks, no boyish charm. Even watching him cry when his parents practically disown him is, it's uncomfortable. It's not even really sad. It just feels gross. And it feels like we're with a completely different person than we started with because they've taken all of Alex's Alex that we've come to know. But everything that we've come to know of Alex is a shit person, right? It also brings to mind our previous psycho episode. We talked about how following a criminal protagonist makes us more sympathetic to their crimes. And during the latter half of this film, one may actually begin to wonder exactly how much Alex is expected to suffer. His prison sentence would have been 14 years. He got out way earlier than that, right? But there would still be violence when he got out. In movies, TV, print, How would he avoid that violence for the rest of his life? Not to mention people. People are inherently violent. He had no means to defend himself, even if he was about to be killed. Is that really better than prison? Even more interesting to to me, Frank realized who Alex was with a song that induced terror in him. So his response was to terrorize Alex with music as well, knowing what the response would be. Frank was so averse to this procedure and condemned the government for it when Alex first showed up because of his leftist ideals and wanting to um, oppose the government so much, but was completely open to using the effects of that procedure when it was to his benefit. Frank represents the left, government the right. Both sides believe that the ends justify the means if they have a good enough reason for it. A clockwork orange, something that looks organic and real on the outside, but is mechanical or man made inside. Is it weird to think that law generally makes us all a little bit mechanical on the inside? no matter what side of the spectrum we fall on. For instance, here's an example. Here in New York, you can't make a right right turn on a red light. I had never experienced that without like the no right turn on red sign. Usually that's like at the corner if you can't turn right. But in New York, you can't turn right on any red lights, no matter what. But I learned. Now, when I go other places, I've been conditioned I've been trained to not turn at a red light, even if I can. The law has trained me, not because I care about other cars or about pedestrians or because I care about civic duty, but because I'll get a ticket if I get caught. I, another example, I, among other people, have made jokes About, like, if I'm driving and I'm like, oh, like, if I hit that person, it's 30 points, 40 points. Like, it's a video game. Like, not real, right? Um, And we make jokes because people are crossing the street too slow. Or because, like, oh, this pedestrian thinks they own the street. They, They think they have the right of way, but they don't. Right? Now, I don't necessarily not hit them because I care about them. Right? I don't hit them because I don't want to go to jail. I can't cut through a parking lot to get to another street and I won't do it, not because I care about the fact that the parking lot is private property, but because I don't want the police to pull me over and to be sitting on the side of the road for 10 minutes while I wait for them to write me a ticket or something worse, who knows? I don't want to interact with the law and I've become conditioned and mechanical to doing the right things because I don't want those problems. So we're all a little bit clockwork. We're all a little bit orangey. I just think we all have things that if the law wasn't the law, we would do them no matter how good we think we are i don't want to kill those pedestrians i've i've already said i don't want to kill them but if i could bump them out of the way i would do it anyway in the, in the original book, there's the last chapter where Alex meets up with Peter, the droog that didn't become a cop, the droog that really wasn't in the mess, you know, and he finds out that Peter's reformed, he's living a better life. And Alex, after a convo with him and, you know, thinking deep, decides that he wants to change his ways as well, and he wants to be a good guy. This last chapter was left out of the American release and ultimately was left out of the film because it doesn't really seem realistic. If a man as inherently evil as Alex's free will was taken away to that degree where he was made sick and then it was returned to him, I highly doubt that he would choose the high road of deciding to become a good guy, especially seeing how he was treated once that free will was taken away and the good treatment that he was getting once he got that free will back. I think that the ending that we got in the movie, the American ending, without the quote-unquote bonus chapter, is the right one. It's the true one. So, do I recommend seeing it? Yeah. It's got some disturbing imagery and it's got some weird moments. But I would say if you were able to sit through, like, say, like Requiem for a Dream, You can make it through this. Uh, Some of the visuals are iconic. Um, It was nominated for a bunch of awards. Didn't win uh, many of them, but was nominated for a lot of them. And still stands as one of Stanley Kubrick's um, greatest films to date. Um, I'm going to have some images posted on the Insta, but it is worth viewing in context to see what those images mean and how they fit in with the film. Um, it's available if you have HBO Max as a part of their Kubrick collection that they have collected right now. Um, but you can also, of course, rent it wherever movies can be rented. That's all the time we have for today. Um, next week, we're going to cover a 60s movies classic about two jealous sisters and one very important question that is actually the title of the movie. Please follow the podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. And if you didn't know, um, if you're a Spotify person, you can now rate, rate podcasts on Spotify. So if you're a Spotify person, you can show a little love over there. Um, hopefully it'll be a five stars, but however you feel... Hopefully, you'll give us a rate. Um, Apple also allows you to rate. And I always recommend listening to Podchaser or Good Pods. They are specifically for bo- podcasts. You can share podcasts um, that your friends like, see what your your friends are listening to. And um, just generally keep your podcast separate from your music, which I know some people like to do. Uh, check out the Life Pod Instagram, uh, as always. Follow me on Twitter at Film underscore Nikki. I am always on Twitter, as I have said a million times. And I actually wanted to mention, um, my Twitter right now is at uh, about 460 followers. When I get to 500 followers on my Twitter, I will be doing a whiskey giveaway. Um, I will uh, be going through a couple of people on my Instagram and doing a couple of 375ml bottles. I didn't want to just give out one because I have gotten a lot of support um, over the last couple of months. So I'll be doing a couple 375ml bottles. I'll be giving people a couple of choices between bourbons or scotch. But you know I am a whiskey gal, so if you um, win, it will be a bottle of whiskey. Um, I... Also, send any collab requests, advice, movie recommendations, or general greetings to any of my DMs on any of my socials, or here's podcast at gmail.com. That's H-E-R-E-S-L-O-O-K-I-N-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. Wow, this was wonderful. I hope you guys had a wonderful holiday um i can't believe i made it through this episode without going into a coughing fit i think i actually am getting um better uh thank goodness uh thank goodness for uh vaccines because who knows what my life would have been like if i had not been vaccinated right now but um here i am and i am really excited to uh share this new year with you in 2022 Hopefully we'll have some good times together, and thank you for tuning in. And if I don't see you, my brothers, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Cheers!